Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. This episode's featured new release is Leaving the Scene by Dana King. The Penns River Police Department has a new chief, deputy chief, and several new officers. Crime pays no attention. A woman dies in a hit and run the night before the new chief takes office. The case demands more manpower than Penns River has, and the investigation loses steam as day-to-day events require immediate attention. Domestic disputes, petty theft, not-so-petty theft, armed robbery, a visit from the Dixie Mafia, and things police take care of because, well, no one else will. Sullivan doesn't want the first homicide in his watch to be an open file and tax Teresa Shimp with to spend as much time as she can on it. It's Teresa's first gig as a primary homicide investigator. She sticks with it, going back over things to reassemble her thoughts until she has a eureka moment. Lead detective Ben Doc Doherty has all of this and some personal matters to contend with. His parents' failing health, a dramatic change in his domestic situation of the two young men he is close to, and finding an old friend has colored outside the lines. Penn's River cast changes, as do the roles they play, but the job is still the job. Leaving the Scene by Dana King is available now from your favorite bookseller and online retailer. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about blackmail, a spoiled child, and bats in the belfry. This is episode 10, Craven's Tale, an adaptation of The Murder at Troit's Hill by Catherine Louisa Perkis. All right, Jack, so today's story is set in Cumberland, England, which is a county on the southwestern border of Scotland. Funny thing is that in 1974, there was a bit of a cleanup in England, and a new county, Cumbria, was formed that encompassed Cumberland, Westmoreland, and then parts of Yorkshire and Lancashire, which I'm sure I'm not saying right, but that's the American version of it. It's always fascinating to me when we're reading fictional stories that are set in real places, but so much time has passed that even those real places don't exist anymore, making them fictional. So we know that our fictional village is located not far off the rail line, and like I said, it's in the former Cumberland County, and that's about all we know for location. So it gives us quite a bit of latitude for picking the real place to sand in for it. So we are going to drop our pins today on Heads Nook, England. Heads Nook is a village outside of the city of Carlisle. 
a search on TripAdvisor found Heads Nook Hall, a B&B that it has to be a real treat. It had 366 reviews and 342 excellent ratings. That's over like a 93% excellent rate. And when I looked at the pictures of it, well, I'll say I'm ready to pack my bags, Jack, and go back to England. So Heads Nook, and yes, I did pick it because I think the name is just awesome. Heads Nook is a six-hour drive from the Royal Conservancy, where the Prime Meridian is set, and three hours from Ravenscar, which is where we dropped our pin for our last English mystery, which was Episode 5, Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone Diamond. Today's story is a short story in a collection called The Experiences of Loveday Burke. Now, I can't figure out if it's pronounced Loveday or Loveday, but since every time I see the word, I say Loveday in my head, that's what I'm saying with my mouth, too. The collection has 151 ratings on Goodreads with an average score of 3.54. So let's see a couple of reviews here. Here's a four-star review. Miss Brooks' cases range from theft to missing persons to murder. They are interesting and illustrate the views of women's proper activities and places of the, in the society of the day. Wow, I should have scrubbed that one more. Proper places, proper activities? I don't think so. Loveday works for a private detective agency, and her employer is the person who is most astounded by her clever unravelings if, of the clues in her cases. Unlike home, she does not have a sidekick who assists her. No Watson for her. The stories are a nice afternoon entertainment. So here's a three-star review. I probably enjoyed this a bit more than three stars worth. An interesting short story collection of seven loosely linked mystery stories, nearly all of which don't involve murders. That is true. I picked like the only one that was murder. So in that sense, they are pleasant reads. Perkis's formula seems to be that we follow the protagonist, watch what happens as she solves the mysteries in a kind of mysterious manner, and then we get the detailed account of how she did it, or what was behind it. Probably the stories and protagonists were more remarkable for their time than nowadays, but they hold up well and the book is quite worth reading. And it's short. <laughs> I'll save my own thoughts on the mystery for afterward. My thoughts don't start off a three-star review with, I probably enjoyed this a bit more than three stars. Then why'd you give it a three-star review? Because it wasn't as good as a four. So you had, what is it? Is it three and a quarter, three and a half, three and three quarters? Just give it four. Just give it four. <laughs> okay. Don't, oh, stupid. All don't, right. don't cheap out. I, I didn't actually finish my part of the song. I just kind of stopped. So <laughs> hold on. All right, now for my part. It's good to give everybody closure. Definitely. Our original author today is Catherine Louisa Pierkus. That's fun to say. Who published as C.L. Perkis and Mrs. Freddie Perkis. Oh, Fred E. Perkis. She was born in 1839 to a middle-class parents. Um, her father was an accountant, and according to VictorianResearch.org, her father's obituary said he died from consequences of excessive exertion to the brain. So there's that. <laughs> That's an awesome thing to die. He overthunk himself to death. Just too smart for his own good. Catherine's husband, Freddie, oh, Fred, was a captain for the English Royal Navy. 
Fred's brother married uh, Catherine's sister, which is just confusing and weird. Uh, the family lives together, which I guess was a thing back then, and Catherine died in 1910 after a long illness, and Fred passed away over two days later. Over two days later? Whatever. Only two days later. It says over. Well, fat fingers. I read what the script says. <laughs> you know he None doesn't. of this has anything to do with Catherine's story. It was just interesting. Catherine wrote 14 novels from 1877 to 1894, and while that was a pretty incredible, she did something else, which was Catherine and her Navy husband, Freddy Boy, were big into animal rights. Okay. They started the National Canine Defense League in 19, nope, 1891, which today is known as Dog Trust. They worked to find dogs their forever homes and do other advocate at <laughs> good work. They put the link in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty cool. Atherton and Alan Pinkerton are the only authors we had so far who created organizations back in their day that exists in our day. HTTP colon slash slash www.dogtrust.org.uk slash. Also, there's another one here. HTTP colon double slash boy en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Catherine underscore Louisa underscore Perkis. If you don't want me to read it, don't put it in the script. I was just going to say that's Jack. That's Jack proving that he's reading everything that's on the script and not the things that he knows are reminders for me to put in the show notes. (laughs) I read. What you tell me to read. Okay? Disagree. Do you think Shakespeare wrote his great plays and then was like, hey, can you do me a favor and not at all read the stage directions? I don't know if I should be charmed that you that you associated my writing with Shakespeare or just, I don't know. That I was... don't know about you, but as Shakespeare himself, I would be pretty annoyed <laughs> if, you know, my great masterpiece was to go out there and some Jerry that I hired decided, hey... You know how he wrote all these lines for stuff to us to do? Let's not tell the audience. Well, he wrote his in like iambic pentameter, which had a rhythm and a rhyme. And and so you couldn't. You couldn't. My stuff is just blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't say it that way. But I said, how would Jack say this? And then I wrote it. (laughs) And he wrote it. HTTP slash colon slash slash www.dogtrust.org.uk slash. Well, my friends, we are nearly ready to begin our story. So while Jack resets his microphone so he can't talk into it anymore and warms up his fingers, I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. Two reasons. The language from the 1800s is hard and can be difficult to understand with our modern ear. The speech cadence is just different. Second, the style and length of the stories were created for listening. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. And so now we are ready for A Craven's Tale. Jack, if you will, take us in. Chapter 1. Smells Like Murder. The green of the trees and shrubbery was slowly but steadily inching toward red and orange and yellow. There was a new sweetness to the air that was a harbinger of the coming autumn. Under it, though, was the scent of something sharper. It was the smell of work, the smell of money. It was the smell of murder. Heads nook, I said, reading the location on the summary sheet. 
Where is it? Ebenezer Dyer, the notorious owner of a well-known detective agency, pointed to the map of the kingdom. West of Newcastle, he said. Alexander Henderson, a groundskeeper at Craven's Nest, was murdered four days ago in his lodge. Locals are pinning the death on an outsider, trying to convince themselves they aren't going to be next if you ask me. The Newcastle Constabulary is looking closer to the main house. Our client, Miss Brooke, is Sergeant William Griffiths. Well, in these modern 1890s times, there are places women can go where men, especially men in uniform, cannot. At least, go and be effective. When do I leave, I asked. Immediately, Dyer said, which was the answer he gave most often. Griffiths will meet you at the station in Newcastle and travel with you to Head's Nook. He has secured a position for you as the anatorist of the, to the master of the house, Edward Craven. I sat up taller. Well, I do hope the job is easier to do than it is to say. Amanuces? Amanuces. He tried to pronounce the words with far too many letters. A transcriber, he said. The old man is writing his treatise on life and needs someone to put it on paper. Ah, a recorder. I will have no issue delivering on that front, I said. I will take the briefing with me and review on the train. As I expected, Dyer said, report directly to Griffiths. Chapter 2, The Train West Leviday Brook, the gentleman approaching, was dressed in plain clothes and yet was unmistakably cop. He was tall with a stern face and iron-gray hair cut so short it stood out on end. His gaze swept from my modest hat over my face and down to my practical dress. I am, you see, exceedingly average. I'm not beautiful, nor am I ugly. I'm not tall, I'm not short, not thin, and not fat. My appearance, although completely expected based on my parentage, was, nonetheless, a disappointment to my mother. I, for myself, would have it no other way. It is my visage that bids me entry into any setting. My packaging may not be rubies and lace, but what lies within my head makes the crown jewels appear dull, and has made me one of Dyer's most successful operatives. Mr. Griffiths, I presume, I said, intentionally avoiding the use of his title. Kind of you to meet me. Allow me to take your suitcase, he said. The train to Hedsnook leaves shortly. Griffiths relieved me of my burden and escorted me from my platform to the one of our departure. The train awaited and soon we were seated in a comfortable compartment. I have read Mr. Dyer's briefing, I said. The recently deceased, groundskeeper of some six and fifty years, was bludgeoned to death in his lodge. Exactly, Miss Brooke, Griffiths said. The lodge has two rooms, a living area and a bedroom. Mr. Henderson, who was known as Sandy, was found in his bedroom. The lodge was tossed, thoroughly turned upside down. A robbery interrupted, I asked. Griffiths shook his head. The money and valuables Sandy kept in his armoire were strewn about the room, but all were accounted for. Hmm, it is curious, I said. To upset a room as you describe would normally be attributed to a manic search for something secreted away. Without theft, the act becomes something of passion. It is at odds, Griffiths said, even with the murder itself, a single blow to the head. The murderer did not abuse old Sandy with violence before or after death. I opened the file on my lap. 
Yes, I see. The efficiency of death is out of sync with the inefficiency of the room. Tell me about your investigation. Griffiths leaned back on the bench and crossed his legs. Of course, we thoroughly interviewed the family and the household. I had been to Craven's Nest when the previous Mr. Craven was head of the house, and so the household knew me. I found many to be upright, but... A few questions raised, I asked. Exactly, he said. Take Edward Craven, master of Craven's Nest. He is the second son and was handed the keys to the house when his elder brother suddenly died about three years ago. Edward was educated at university and then moved to Natal, South Africa. Craven brought Sandy to Headsnook with him. They had been schoolmates at Oxford. In answering questions, Craven has been evasive, to say the least. Next we have Harry Craven, the 19-year-old son. He's been known to have rows with Sandy, public rows. It's known that Harry left the house around 10 the night of the murder. His actions and time of his return are not known. Harry was not at the inquest. He has been diagnosed with typhoid fever. His mother has quarantined him in a wing of the house and is nursing him herself. And finally we have John Hales. He was the butler at Craven's Nest before Edward became master of the house. Word about the village is he and Sandy were at loggerheads more than once. It seems Sandy thought himself lord over more than just the grounds. Hales claimed to have been in his room alone all night. And now this brief interrupt intermission for barking dogs. So, yeah, you hear the one about the, uh, the hounds uh, of the Baskerville. Yeah, that one. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so the butler, John Hales, because it's never the butler who does it, claims to have been in his room alone all night. Others live in the house, although most of the staff was sent on holiday due to the typhoid fever. There is Mrs. Fanny Craven and her maid, a young woman named Maggie. Besides the butler, there is a cook, Mrs. Honeydukes. Mr. and Mrs. Craven have a 17-year-old daughter, Nina, and she was sent to Newcastle to live with friends when her brother became sick. I would like daily reports, Griffith said. I have made arrangements with the stable hand. Any letter you give to him will be delivered to me in the village. I will send letters the same. The man can be trusted completely. I doubt that. Chapter 3, First Impressions I arrived at Craven's Nest Manor House on the outskirts of Head's Nook near 3 in the afternoon. The butler, John Hales, greeted me with the efficiency of a man who excelled at his profession. He was in his 50s, with hair graying at the temples. His demeanor was friendly without being overly so, and said that he paid, placed me at the same rank as a nursery governess. Taking my bag, he led the way up the wide stairs of the north wing. We are short-handed at the moment, Hale said. Master Craven has typhoid fever, as I'm sure you've been told. Have no worries. Madam and Master have locked themselves into the first floor apartment. They have no interaction with the staff or the rest of the house. I, I lifted my skirts and followed. Thank you, Mr. Hales. That eases my mind. I can't help but be curious, sir. How do they eat? How do they stay clean? Hales reached the first landing and turned down the hallway. The apartment is located above the kitchen and has a dedicated staircase. 
We leave food and drink at the bottom of the stairs. Madam takes up the tray and then returns the empties. None of us have been in the room, not even Maggie, her maid. Clever, I said. When will I meet my employer? At dinner? Not likely, Hale said. I suggest taking your time today. I can have a tray brought up. Mr. Craven always has breakfast. It would be best to begin there. Hale stopped outside of a door. Cook and I thought it best to put you in Miss Craven's room. She and her maid went to Newcastle. Her room needed the least work to be made ready for you. He opened the door and revealed the woman of near equal age dusting the mantle. Oh, you're here. I'm Mrs. Honeydukes, the cook, she said, and then looked at the feather duster. And the maid, it seems. I swept into the room. Thank you for your consideration, Mrs. Honeydukes, but I'm capable of setting the room to right myself. In fact, I prefer it. Mrs. Honeydukes smiled with relief and set the duster on the mantel. Would you care for a cup of tea? Perhaps a sandwich? In short turn, I was alone in Nina Craven's room. The wardrobe was empty, every last thread removed. The dressing table was free of jars and bottles, but had streaks and spots of makeup. Beneath the table were strands of long blonde hair. I dragged my fingers across the rug, coming away with a nest of silky strands. After my repast, I set out to explore the grounds. The house was brick, three floors tall, and stretched out north and south. The ground floor windows were tall and slender, opening directly onto the front porch. The wood framing of the porch was in desperate need of painting. In fact, when I looked closely, I saw that nearly every part of the house was in need of attention. Of these some 24 windows in front of me, only two had sets of drapery. In the north wing, the three windows on the ground floor had long blue drapes. In the south wing, the four windows on the first floor had white curtains, which likely was acting as a typhoid ward. I turned down the driveway and followed the path to Sandy's Lodge. I had noticed the pretty building when the carriage turned into the gate. Any hopes I had of finding footprints were squelched when I realized that gravel fully encircled the lodge. The door was open and I entered. The lodge smelled and felt of stale air. It had only been days, but this September was warmer than most. There was not much to look at. All signs of the previous occupant had been removed, except for a dark stain in the bedroom. According to the report, Sandy was found on the floor, feet near the wall, under the window. He was wearing his nightshirt. I studied the window. As I said, this September was warmer than most, warm enough to sleep with the window open. From the lodge, I followed the gravel path from the main house. Screened behind shrubbery were the stables. The first impression again was an immediate need for maintenance and basic repairs to the building. I walked through the stables and found only three stalls inhabited. For the shabbiness of the structure, the horse flesh appeared well taken care of. The gravel path continued and so did I. Soon I came to the most amazing arbor. Trees and plants had been trained to reach over the path, creating a tunnel that was at once romantic and terrifying, fantastical and wonderful. Well away from the entrance, a large black rock sat on the edge of the path, out of place on the gravel. Coming to my knees, I was disturbed to find that it was not a stone at all, but the front half of a paw. Parting the floral revealed a beautiful black lab. Lying in an unnatural position, he was dead. A horrible wound was atop the flat of his head. I could not pull the poor creature from his position, nor could I reach him for a more thorough examination. I tucked in his paw and, leaving him to his eternal slumber, followed the path on. 
The tunnel emptied into the rear garden. The garden, like the house and the stable, was in want of attention. I followed the path to the main house, noting that the only part of Craven's nest that was up to stuff was Old Sandy's lodge. I indulged in a walk around the house. It must have once been a sight. Windows on the back matched the front, ground level all open to a terrace, and the only windows with the treatment was the room I used and the one below. Through the window of what appeared to be a study, a terribly tall man was slumped in his chair, his head in his hand. While I watched him for several minutes, he never moved. Though in thought, asleep, or dead, I could not tell. Chapter 4. Pork Chops with a Side of Lament That evening, I dined under the stairs with Mr. Hale and Mrs. Honeydukes. The butler and the cook had already settled the craven's nest in for the evening. The maid, Maggie, had taken dinner to the stable hand and was eating with him. Did you find your way around then, Miss Brooke? Miss Honeydukes asked, setting a plate in front of me. This looks wonderful, and I do enjoy a good pork chop, I said. Charming grounds. I especially love the little lodge. Is it in use? It was, Mrs. Honeyduke said, until a few days ago. Mr. Henderson, the groundskeeper, lived there. He's gone on now to his heavenly reward. Mr. Hale huffed. It was a sad affair, the cook went on. A fiend stole onto the grounds, found Mr. Henderson unawares, and sent him to an early grave, and then had the audacity to tumble the cottage. Twas the same time Master Harry came down with typhoid and Miss Nina was rushed off to Newcastle. It was understandable. Madam Craven wanted the lodge put to rights, but particularly difficult with so few hands. Happy to be rid of them, Hales grumbled under his breath. Mr. Hales, Mrs. Honeyduke said, where is your Christian charity? The same place his was when it came to money. Hales pointed with his fork at the cook. Don't pretend it was any different. Sandy was all but stole this house from Master Craven, taking over as if he were the birth son. Cut my salary, and for what? A groundskeeper who didn't keep the grounds. If any work was done, it was done by the gardener's boy. Even he's gone now. I don't mean to pry, I said demurely, but I am curious. Mr. Craven does have the purse to pay my salary, doesn't he? I'm not in the position to work for promises. Hale's gaze swept over me, much like Griffiths had done. I expect my presentation supported my position. Eventually, he gave a sharp nod. The books have been lean since his brother died. Master Craven left his post in South Africa and returned home with his family. Household expenses were cut to the bone to send Master Harry to Oxford. Miss Nina has been educated by her mother. It implied that time, not money, had been invested in the girl's education. I lifted my chin in unspoken concern. Mr. Hale shrugged and spared a glance from Mrs. Honeydukes. There's no worry about your salary, Miss Brooke, not with old Sandy gone. The household is richer by far without him. Mr. Hale, Mrs. Honeyduke said in a tone that neither rebuked nor condoned. "'Tis true, he said. My own fortunes are better. Not only is my debt canceled, but I'll see my salary reinstated. <gasps> I gasped. I'm not afraid of hard work, Mr. Hales, but I have to know I'll be compensated. I am ashamed to say that I had to borrow for the train ticket. If Master Craven can't afford to school his own daughter, how can he afford a recorder? 
Nina is a darling girl, Mrs. Honeyduke said, going on a tangent. Both children are jewels, to be sure. Why, if you didn't know there was two years between them, you would swear they were twins. Miss Nina is a daffodil, no doubt, Hale said. Master Harry, well, he has a dash of hellfire in him. There's no worry about your salary, Miss Brooke, especially with old Sandy gone. After the most excellent dinner, I penned a note to Griffiths and sent it by way of the stable hand. My report was sustained. Hale's salary was cut when Craven brought Handy on the payroll. Hale's also owed money to Craven, amount unknown. We'll meet Mr. Craven in the morning. Found a dog dead. Chapter 5, A Treatise on Elemental Sound Rather than break fast beneath the stairs, Mrs. Mr. Hale seated me in the family dining room. Though Mr. Craven varied in his time of appearance, he did appear daily, I was assured. Mr. Hale's advice was to eat slowly and be patient. I endeavored to follow the advice and was shelling my soft-boiled egg when the master of the house entered. Mr. Craven was an oddly tall man, one whose legs seemed long and delicate as a mantis. He folded them as he sank into his chair. Good morning, Mr. Craven. I am Miss Brooke, your recorder. I deferred to him with a bowed head and enticed him with a compliment. I'm very excited to assist you with such important work. Right, yes, Miss Brooke. Lovely to have you, he said. I've been working night and day on my treatise. It will revolutionize the modern world, you know. It will be akin to helping the blind man see and the deaf man hear. Because, you see, the fundamental thing about elemental sound is... is... Craven drifted off. First his gaze lifted to the far corner of the ceiling, and then he dropped his head into his hand. At once he was in the position I had witnessed last night. He didn't move. He made not a sound. It was as if last night I could not tell if he was in thought, asleep, or dead. I had a thought of calling for Mr. Hales when the butler entered with the folded newspaper. He set it next to Craven. Madame has sent the newspaper to you, Hale said. When Craven didn't respond, Hale straightened and looked at me, his expression one of telling normalcy, before he withdrew the room. Alone, as Mr. Craven was in his state, I moved to the end seat where I could read the newspaper. It was folded in a peculiar way, putting the past week's shipping list front and center. The list was long and simple. Date sailed, from port to port, ship name. In the four days prior to Sandy's death, none of the arriving ships had names or origins thus far relating to Sandy, the Craven's Nest, or Head's Nook. In the three days since his death, some 20 vessels sailed from England with one destination that deserved attention, Natal, South Africa. I say now, who are you? Mr. Craven pushed himself upright, looking at his surroundings. I'm Miss Brooke, Mr. Craven, your recorder. I am to assist you with your treatise. By Jove you are, well let's get to it. He rose, wound those long fingers around my wrist and dragged me from the dining room. Although not short, I was no match for his towering height and had to nearly run to keep up with my employer. We wound, wound through the west wing to the very end. The heavy oak door opened to a room that was once very well appointed and was now thoroughly lived in. At my desk, if you please, Miss Brooke. I took my position behind a commanding desk and focused on my attention on Craven. You see, Miss Brooke, I have words here, he knocked on his head. 
My trouble is getting them to come out here. He mimed pulling words from his mouth. My premise is that there are sounds that are created by and belong to the universe. These sounds transcend sex and age, class and nationality. In fact, my theory is these sounds transcend species. This means he silently stared into the cold, clean fireplace all of a sudden. Of course, at this point, I questioned the integrity of Mr. Craven's mental capabilities. I had never before seen someone drift away in the middle of a sentence. This was obviously not a novel event based on Mr. Hale's reaction, or lack thereof. Sparing time to examine my surroundings, the de desk beneath my hands was a fine specimen and may have dated back to the original Craven. A neat stack of completed pages faced downward to my right. An equally neat stack of blank pages awaited ink to my left. Between the two was a large pad, heavily covered with words. Feed Captain, Harold Cousins, Elemental Sound, Natal. The words and phrases were not written once, but ten or more times each. Where was I? Craven said suddenly. Your theory of elemental sound transcends species, I said, taking up pen and ink. Exactly so, he said, falling heavily onto the couch the color of plums. The cosmos is not a set of individual phenomena, but a single, all-encompassing... What is the word? He dropped his head into his hand. And there it stayed. An hour later, I surreptitiously had explored every aspect of the room. Two lower drawers of the desk were locked, and I had yet to ascertain the location of the key. I did find the bookkeeping for Craven's Nest and found the financial situation was indeed fragile. Saving Sandy's salary, which was twice the butler's, would have been akin to a windfall. A knock heralded Mr. Hales entering with a tray of tea and roused Mr. Craven. Tea this morning, sir. What? Craven said, still dull-witted. Yes, yes, of course. There's still no sight of Captain, Hale said as he poured the tea. Miss Brooke? Yes, please. Thank you, Mr. Hale, I said to the tea. Who is Captain? Captain is my black lad, Craven said. Best dog I ever had. No. He disappeared the night old Sandy died, Hale said, placing the tea on the desk. He went out for his evening constitutional and never came back. I see, I said, sipping the excellent tea. A letter has arrived, miss. Hales pulled a sealed letter from his pocket. It was sealed with an elaborate G. My uncle, I said, he worries so. With Mr. Hales making his exit and Mr. Craven lost in the mystery of tea, I read my letter. It was from Griffiths. Found out what young Craven was doing that night. Am coming with a warrant. Damnation! Craven exploded from his seat, startling me into gasping. There! That's it! An elemental sound! Do it again, he ordered. <gasps> no, he said, disappointed. That isn't it at all. He was on his feet then, pacing in front of the desk. I am sorry, sir, I said. I should have thought to put it to an experiment. He whirled in the air, a praying mantis on his meal. Roar! I failed to gasp appropriately. He spent the rest of the morning attempting to startle me. Less than an hour later, I saw Griffiths arrive with the stable of constables. Straining my ears, I listened for the sounds of men storming the castle, as it were. I heard nothing. The house was so large from one end to the other that not one sound made its way to my ears. Mr. Craven, sir, may I have a moment to myself? Eh? 
Bah, have your moment, he said, falling back onto the couch, head back in his head. Maybe startling you is not enough. I exited the room quickly and, rather than fight my way through the labyrinth of a house, used an open window to gain access to the front terrace. There I quickly made my way to the main door. A constable was standing outside. Hello, I said. I'm Miss Brooke, Mr. Craven's recorder. Is there a problem? You'll have to ask Sergeant Griffiths, ma'am. He waved me inside where I found Griffiths rubbing the gray stubbles of his hair. After requisite small talk to maintain my cover, Griffiths and I were closed in a small parlor. What did you discover, I asked. Young Craven went into Headsnook on the night of the murder to sell a family plate. A law-abiding lender said Harry Craven brought the plate in looking for a hundred pounds. The lender gave him ten pounds and saw him out the door around eleven. Craven was very agitated, he said, and begged him not to mention his visit to anyone. I came here to question Craven on how he happened to come and go past the lodge in question twice that night, for all the good it did me. What do you mean, I asked. Did he have an alibi? Griffiths ran an irritated hand through his hair again. He did not, because he is not Harry Craven, but Nina Craven, sitting up in that room. Of course, I said. Now this is the part in the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch a killer. You know everything that I know. It is a a mystery to say the least. Papa Smurf did it. <laughs> you think Papa Smurf would have killed a dog? Heck yeah. You could definitely tell these are landmark cutting edge mysteries because this is the second time we have had a dog killed. Do they not know the rule of mysteries thou shalt not kill the dog? Puppy. Puppy. Oh, hey, while we're at this break, I want to ask our uh, listeners in India, I have a favor to ask. I am looking large and far and wide for mysteries, either set in India, written by Indian authors, or that involve Indian detectives. Um, the resources I have hand so far, I have not found anything that would have a place here in Mysteries to Die For. If you have a favorite story, if you have a favorite author, please help me find them. You can reach me on email at tina at tgwolf.com or I'm on Twitter at tg underscore wolf and that's W-O-L-F-F. Appreciate any help. Yep. Yep. All right. So I know there's not much to go on, but I will give you this one hint Jack and our dear listeners, you have met the killer. Then it wasn't Nina. Then <clears throat> it wasn't Papa Smurf. <laughs> what? We know we met Papa Smurf. Where do we meet Papa Smurf? Pop, he's he just ran around like a praying mantis. <laughs> yeah, the dad, the big boy. It's a big boy, the Edward Craven. <laughs> yeah. Papa when I Smurf. think of Papa Smurf, I think small and blue, not tall and mantis like. Ah, I meant the. <laughs> Head of the household. The head of the household. That's your vote. Papa All Smurf. Right. <laughs> Chapter 6. The Straw That Broke. The following day repeated the first. Craven alternated with falling into catatonic state and trying to scare me into gasping. No matter how I tried, the sounds I made failed to cross his threshold. I gradually became concerned for my safety and sent a letter to Griffiths directing him to have men around the house. If a green lamp appeared in the window, they were to enter with all due haste. 
After dinner, Mr. Craven insisted on another session. In the 13 hours I had spent in the study, I'd written three pages. After the ink dried, I added to these the 200 sheets of incoherent babble stacked to my right. I had written three sentences before Craven again drifted off. It was no mystery why the family and household let the old man govern this end of the house. Where did he go? Craven shouted, shoving to his feet. Where is the foul creature? I saw him sneaking around the room. Who, sir? I asked. Why that whiny Sandy Henderson, he said. Did you hear him? Clear as day, he said. I know your secret, master. You'll want to keep Sandy happy. Craven looked around suddenly, his eyes now clear. No, no, of course not. Sandy is dead and buried. They had the inquest and we all said how the saint was in heaven now. The truth was the devil took him the other way. I rose from my seat, stepping slowly from behind the desk. Then he was a bad man, sir? Oh, yes, if there ever was a man who deserved death, it was him. For 30 years he hung the secret around my neck like a noose. I, he looked off in the distance. I imagine it was something that happened at school, I said quickly, trying to prevent him from sliding into his melancholy. Yes, yes, you see, I married a disreputable woman in my youth, a barmaid. Sandy, he was at the wedding. A mistake. He stretched the word out, ending in an anguished groan. A good blow at the hammer and the deed was done. I stepped gently, working to avoid startling the skittish animal. Do you have the hammer here? I would like to see it. Hammer, Craven said, spinning around. Who said anything about a hammer? We've spoken about a hammer several times, I said, counting on him obscuring fantasy and reality. You described the one that killed your dog, Captain. I would be better able to describe it if I could see it. Poor Captain. He was my best dog, Craven said sadly, then shook his head. Where were we? Right. Elemental sound. It is a, a pure sound. That was what haunted me that night. I went in search of it, certain it was just outside of my reach. Captain was at my side, as serious as I, and it came to me. In the moment of death, would this highly bred, well-behaved creature utter the sound of the universe? I had to conduct the experiment. My heart broke for the faithful companion and hardened against the man in front of me, and yet I hid it. Did Captain yelp or groan, I asked. He yelped like a common mutt, Craven said was so disappointed I should have left him alone no elemental sound and the old goat opened his window master what are you doing out this time of night his voice was craggly and nasally and noisy to my ears and then I wheeled the hammer again one blow I had my confession now I just needed my coppers did he make the elemental sound no, Craven said, cursing softly. The old sod just fell backwards. The only noise that came was from his nasty head hitting the floor. And then I realized it. An elemental sound, I asked. No, he said. I was free. <laughs> I was free of Sandy Henderson. I felt light and happy, and I tried to fly, but I couldn't. Instead, I tumbled his rooms, just like we did back at school. Over and over and over it went. Craven locked the door and then went to the table covered with rocks and fossils. He withdrew a hammer, one meant for archaeology. The light is too dim in here, I said, quickly moving the green lamp to the window. Better. May I see it? Oh, that won't do at all, Craven said, and removed the lamp from the window. Anyone outside would be able to see what we were doing. Aren't you curious, my dear, what sound you would make if only I tapped you here? 
The hammer came within an inch of my forehead. I had to hope the brief time the lamp had been in the window was seen by Griffiths, but I had to expect it hadn't been. I moved away from Cro Craven toward one of the windows overlooking the front porch. Of all the things I'm curious about, Mr. Craven, that is not one. Would you like to begin dictating again? I don't think so, my dear. I think I should like to see for myself the sound you make. His long arm levered back. I ran to the window screaming once and then a second time when two arms pulled me through. We have you, Miss Brooke, Sergeant Griffiths said, and we have Craven too. Well, Griffiths escorted me to the train station the next morning. In the carriage, we tied off the last notes. Mrs. Craven suspected her son Harry of killing Sandy. Harry had developed an unsavory reputation, and though he denied the accusation, he wasn't believed. His mother concocted the plan to send her son to South Africa to the safety of her family. She conceived of the typhoid plot and enlisted her daughter to act as the body double. Nina had gone to a friend's house, then sent her maid on holiday and returned to the house. She cut off her hair to further aid in her impersonating her brother, should the need arise. It was explained that it explained the hair found under the dressing table. Harry sailed to Natal as Harold Cousins, the name Craven Sr. had written over and over in an effort to memorize the name. The butler, John Hales, had no role in the murder, but stayed on to help Mrs. Craven run Craven's Nest his, at his full salary, and he even negotiated a modest raise for Mrs. Honeydews. All the treachery was Edward Craven, acting alone, with spontaneity, with spontaneity, and without sanity. Living with the man every day, I can only assume that they failed to notice when eccentricity tipped over to insanity. For when confronted with reality, the family and the household had a myriad of emotions, but none of which was surprise. So let's talk about this story. Does the logic work? Sure, as far as insanity ever does. Catherine did a really nice job in what was originally a 10,000 word story to give us three credible suspects and a valid sequence of events. One very minor point for me was how old Craven Sr. and Sandy were. Uh, Harry's age is specifically named as 19, but no other character had that level of detail. Um, Craven and Sandy were described as being, quote, old, but Craven has teenage children. So perhaps old was more of a reflection of one being insane and the other being a crotchety blackmailer. I know it was more common for older men to have younger wives in this time period in social circle, so I put them in their mid-60s, meaning he was near 40 when Harry was born. Some of the more literary reviews of the story and implied that there was a lot deeper meaning, that Catherine attempted to draw parallels between the dog and people. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I know academics love to speculate on that sort of thing, and the only person who can really tell us has been dead for 110 years. It certainly would seem a natural thing to try to draw with her activism in animal rights. And for, by the way, for a person who started a uh, foundation to save and rescue dogs, I'm all that more appalled that she killed one. I mean, she could have killed a fox, she could have killed a cat, she could, I know the cat lovers are going to be like, no, not the kitty, but still, I'm surprised she killed a dog. 
Levitt A. Brooke is a great character. Uh, she was master of her own story, and she definitely goes about quietly unraveling the mystery. I definitely am a, she's a fan favorite, or I'm a fan favorite for her, vice versa. That being said, and the original story is in one of my least favorite formats. As many of you know, I love mysteries because I love to attempt to solve the puzzle. Not that I'm often successful, but hey, it's the journey, not the destination. The original form of this story was more like Jeopardy, when the author gave you the answer without letting you see the events. Reading this story or any of Leviday's experiences, you do not see what she sees. Instead, you are left waiting for her to explain. Here's an example. The scene where Loveday had dinner with the butler and the cook was not in the original story. Instead, this is how you hear about the butler owing money. It's in a letter that she writes to Griffith. So this is actually Griffith's voice reading it. On the evening, on the evening of the first of those days, Detective Griffiths received, through a trusty postboy, the following brief note from her. Quote, I have found what Hales owed Sandy close upon a hundred pounds, which he had borrowed at various times. I do not know whether you will think this fact of any importance. Signed, L.B. End quote. I am not a fan of being spoon-fed answers, and I'm not a fan of, seeing, of not seeing events firsthand. Uh, hence, I inverted the story for you when creating it so that you got a mystery. So here are my ratings. Five for the leading character. Like I said, Leviday is an interesting character, one that flies below the surface. She has that logic sense about her and she keeps her head. She is a very cool character. Five for the mystery logic. Again, between Harry, Hales, and Craven, they lend out five or three very credible um, suspects and she does a good job of eliminating them too. For storytelling, I'm sorry, but I give it a two. Yes, it is totally subjective, but I do not like the, uh, let me tell you what I saw instead of just letting me see what you see. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. A Craven's Tale was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted, adapted from The Murder at Troy's Hill by Catherine Louise Perkis. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. And spontaneous dog barking was by Lucy and Mia Wolf. Join us in two weeks for episode 10, Blind, an adaptation of The Mysterious Card by Cleveland Moffat. All right, Jack, the floor is yours. <laughs>